Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Ion Veterans ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Have you ever covered a carpet stain with a rug? Ignored a leaky faucet? Pretended your half-painted living room is supposed to look like that? Well, you're not alone. We've all got unfinished home projects. But there's an easier way. When you download Thumbtack, it's easier to care for your home from top to bottom. Pull out your phone and in just a few steps, you can search, chat, and book highly rated pros right in your neighborhood. Plus, you'll know what to tackle next because Thumbtack is the app that shows you what to do, who to hire, and when. So say goodbye to all those unfinished home projects and say hello to caring for your home the easier way. Download Thumbtack and start a project today. This is Ion Veterans Weekend, a roundup of the week's most important stories affecting those who served. Presented by University of Maryland Global Campus. There are nearly 20 million, 20 million military, military veterans, veterans in, in the U.S. Each week, we focus on their stories. Powered by ConnectingVets.com. This, this is CBS Eye on Veterans. Eye on Veterans. Welcome to another edition of CBS Eye on Veterans. I'm Navy veteran Phil Briggs. This hour, we'll get a look at life inside one of the most elite counterterrorism units in the world as we talk with former SEAL Team 6 member and world record-holding skydiver Andy Stumpf. So we would train oftentimes with gas masks and night vision goggles on in the kill house in Virginia Beach. But again, that's different than actually running around in an urban environment where people are getting shot at, people are getting shot. And we start wondering, is Navy Special Warfare, uh, is DevGrew, I mean, are, 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 are these people out of control? War is an interesting thing. And if you touch it, I believe that it touches you back. And it, it impacts and affects people in very different ways. You know, 2020 is a rough year. There's a lot of things that are changing. There's a lot of uncertainty. And another way you could describe that is just stress. And I think it's easy for people to think that they're alone and on an island. But I don't, I don't think that's the case. That's all coming at you next. Now we'll start today's show off with an update on toxic exposures and what's being done to help veterans who are suffering from the after effects of being stationed near those massive burn pits. This week in Washington, D.C., veterans, activists, members of Congress, and widows gathered around a podium at the base of the U.S. Capitol and launched a bill that will force the VA to help veterans who are dying from exposures to those burn pits. As you're about to hear, what happened at this press conference is a prime example of how without even trying, Congress screwed our vets while their bill was being announced. The press conference was organized by Burn Pits 360 and was hosted by comedian-turned-activist John Stewart. 
And all the, the first responders and survivors and victims came down to Washington over and over and over again, sick and dying, walking the halls of Congress just to get them to recognize the basic humanity of what they were dealing with, that their selflessness and heroism had put them in harm's way and they had been sick. And when it was done, we thought it was done. But it turns out that the war fighters that were sent to prosecute the battle based on the attack of 9-11 now suffer the same injuries and illnesses that the first responders suffered from and they're getting the same cold shoulder from Congress that they received. And so the fight starts again. The only difference between the first responders at ground zero who were sick and dying from toxic exposure is that that was caused by a terrorist attack on our country. The veterans in Iraq and Afghanistan are suffering the same illnesses and the same toxic exposure because of the actions of our own government. We dug burn pits, some of them 10 acres. They burned 24 seven. Everything, every hazardous waste was piled into them. And what's the common uh, uh, ingredient? Jet fuel. Jet fuel as the accelerant at ground zero, jet fuel as the accelerant in these burn pits. And so our veterans lived 24 hours a day, seven days a week, next to toxic smoke, dioxins, everything. And now they're being told, hey man, is that stuff bad for you? I don't know, we don't have the science. It's bullshit. It's about money. And we're here today to say we're not gonna let this happen in the dark. So then we heard from one of the strongest voices driving the burn pit issue, founder of Burn Pits 360, Rosie Lopez Torres. As a combat veteran and first responder, my, mi my mission to serve is etched in my soul and my heart, and I will do so until that flag is draped over my coffin. She was reading words from her husband, retired Army Captain Leroy Torres. You see, he's too ill to travel to D.C. as he suffers from constrictive bronchiolitis from the very burn pit fumes he inhaled while stationed at Camp Anaconda in Balad, Iraq. As she read his words, listen to the noise in the background. The lack of healthcare services from VA and DOD forced me to exhaust my life savings to access care. I was diagnosed with poor lung disease and a toxic brain injury. The mental and emotional trauma is from being shamed and treated like a defendant, having to prove that I should have the right to... That's less than 200 yards away from the square where the press briefings are often held. And what's sad but true is that amplification is not allowed in the press area. Yet you can clearly hear that the lawmakers who are standing on a flight of massive white stairs that lead up to the House of Representatives, well, they've obviously got a PA. I was punished for serving my country. I graduated with my master's degree while on military leave and returned to war two weeks later. Why is this important? We go to war. And what were they doing? I mean, I still don't know. Other than it sounded like a pep rally and damn sure was not related to a vote on any kind of bill. Now the press conference moved on and others tried to speak over them, including widows, veterans currently sick, and former VA secretary, Dr. David Shulkin, 
But when former 9-11 first responder turned activist John Feal took the podium, there was no question on how he felt. But not one person on those steps stopped to talk to any of these heroes behind me. Not one person stopped and said, thank you for your service. Are you okay? How can I help? You just said America's worth fighting for. What the? Are you kidding me? This is embarrassing. So we come here today. I'm shocked, I'm appalled, and I'm repulsed by what I'm listening to right now behind me. These men and women deserve better. The 9-11 community deserves better. The American people, I get it. We're all going through a lot right now. Pandemic, social uprising, election. But when do we stop caring about life, about human beings? Now we heard from the authors of the Presumptive Warfighters Benefits Act, Senator Kirsten Gillibrand and Representative Raul Ruiz. But one of my favorite parts was when we heard from Grunt Style's Tim Jensen shouting at the passing Congress people who didn't have the balls to stop by and see what our press conference was about. Fight the VA for the care that is linked to their service. For the VA to drag its feet. Walk away. This is the country we're fighting for. We've heard it. Now, even with a ridiculous congressional pep rally going on behind these vets, John Stewart drew attention to the one thing we should all remember as this fight for veterans' benefits begins. And the truth is, it's not about science. It's about money. They don't want to do this for these veterans because they think it's too expensive. We always have money for war. We never have money for the war fighter. And it's unacceptable. We support the troops until the troops need support. And then we bury it. So I'm gonna tell you something that is the optimism in this, that's the sunlight in this, and that is, this is an eminently fixable problem. It's simple. And the money, already exists in the system. The Pentagon has an $800 billion budget, along with an $80 billion OCO fund, Overseas Contingency Operations Fund, that's unaccountable. Take 5% of the OCO and we've got it. $400 billion of the Pentagon budget goes to defense contractors, people that profit off of sending our men and women to war, yet they have no accountability for the consequences of that. 2% tax on war profiteers, and we have the money. Please do not allow Congress people to duck this issue. We have the money. And to find out more, the next steps you can take, ways you can reach your Congress people, I encourage you to follow brands like Grunt Style on Facebook, and look up burnpits360.org and follow their lead. Welcome back to CBS Eye on Veterans. I'm your host, Navy veteran Phil Briggs. And our next guest knew he wanted to be a Navy SEAL when he was just a kid, like an 11-year-old kid. And he joined the Navy as a junior in high school, entering into service in 1996. 
where he quickly joined SEAL Team 5. Of course, after a few years in, a global war on terrorism and dozens, maybe even hundreds of missions, he eventually moved up to the ranks of the nation's elite counterterrorism unit known as SEAL Team 6. We've heard of it. It's the team that Hollywood makes movies about. It's the team known for taking out some of the most notorious terrorists in the world, Osama bin Laden. It's also the one that the other service branches tend to make fun of. My friends that are Army Rangers, you guys know what I'm talking about. We'll hear about being the new guy. We'll hear about close encounters with AK-47s, getting really, really high, and jumping, and some inspiring words on mental health. So it's my pleasure to welcome former Navy SEAL Andy Stump. Andy, welcome to Ion Veterans, man. Yeah, thanks for having me, Phil. Good, and proud to call you my shipmate, because as you were entering the service at, uh, what, 17 or 18 years old, I was a 21-year-old kid on an uh, on an aircraft carrier, and uh, man, I... <clears throat> My first question is always like, what made you want to join the military? Why did you want to get in? But especially in the 90s, man. I mean, the 90s was like the internet and chat rooms and everybody's listening to Green Day and there was no real war going on. What was it that drove you to want to be a SEAL? You know, I was recording a podcast yesterday um, with a mother of a service member. Her, Her story happens to be tragic and with what happened with her son, but she asked me the same question. And my response is generally the same. I don't have any ability to describe it better now at 42 than I did when I was 11. You know, my vocabulary is a touch better. But it was a gravitational pull for me. And it was, it just became, once I heard about it, I became infatuated with it. And it was something that I never deviated from. And it's odd for people to hear that. But when I got into the SEAL community, I was surrounded by people who felt that same gravitational pull, and all of them struggled to really articulate exactly what it was. You know, I kind of understand it a little bit, although mine wasn't necessarily to join the elite ranks, you know, in a combat capacity. I did want to become a Navy journalist. Rather, I did want to become like an Adrian Cronauer. I always wanted to do a talk show, always wanted to cover, uh, you know, make stories and tell stories. And I got a chance to do that. And then I also got a chance to serve in the fleet on a carrier. And I remember being, you know, a young kid and seeing Top Gun and thinking, you know, although it sounds cliche, just how cool that would be. And, you know, getting to do them both. I always felt like I was in the exact place I was supposed to be. And um, that's kind of kind of who we are in our DNA. So I love that about you, man. Yeah, I agree. It, and it's people have that calling from a variety of professions, whether it's law enforcement, first responder. I know people who felt that way about being an attorney or actually the woman that I was interviewing or having a conversation with yesterday. She was a print journalist and knew she wanted to be since she was seven years old. I think if you're lucky... Um, and it's not wrong if it doesn't happen to you, and I think you should keep searching, but I think some people get lucky and they find that thing that's their magnetic north for their compass, and they are able to go after it. It's amazing what they do. And just like your service, I'd like to think no matter where you are in the world, on a second's notice, I can bring you dark comedy and inappropriate comments off the top of my head. It's just it's my natural God-given ability, so... Hopefully. Yeah, I think I have that skill as well. <laughs> Hopefully we'll find some use for that throughout this interview. Uh, let's yeah. talk real quick um, about uh, just advancement in general. A lot of people always find your background and the SEAL background interesting. Um, I read Jocko's Leadership Strategy and Tactics and was just spellbound uh, when I talked to him about the book, about being a new guy on a SEAL team. And for those listening, you know, you go through the SEAL training, it's called BUDS or Basic Underwater Demolition School, and then you go to Airborne School, and you've survived almost drowning, you've, you've, you've survived being screamed at and yelled at and pushed out of airplanes, and then you get to this SEAL team. 
And after all that training, everybody thinks if you make it through, oh, you're just a total warrior. What was it like when you first got to the SEAL team after finishing BUDS in airborne school and thinking you're bulletproof? Uh, you know, I don't really think I ever had a feeling of being bulletproof. I think maybe I was a little bit perhaps overeager or overestimated uh, my capabilities. Because the things that you mentioned, they're schools. You know, BUDS, you know, everybody asks me, not everybody, a lot of people ask me, you know, well, do you have to hold your breath until you pass out or do you get to a near-drowning experience in BUDS? And the answer to that is no. If that happens to you in BUDS, you're making a mistake. But it's a selection program where there's not a lot of time spent on education because that's not the purpose of the course. And then you go to airborne school in Fort Benning, and, again, that's a very basic introduction into parachuting, static line parachuting specifically. But that's really all I had, those two schools, when I showed up at my first team. And then you start to develop an understanding of what the actual job of a SEAL is. And it really is a jack of all trades and a master of none. You need to have proficiency in the demolition, the waterborne demolition that you do learn a little bit of in BUDS. You need to be able to static line parachute, but you need to be able to freefall parachute as well and do navigation on foot or in a helicopter or in a vehicle. You need to have radio capability and understanding. You need to have a baseline in medicine. You need to have a baseline in ordinance. You have to be able to work in a variety of environments from desert to jungle to mountainous to the combination of the three. And it goes on and on and on. So it's kind of drinking from the water hose realization that there's no way you're going to master all of the things that could be expected of you. And your career, I would describe it as constantly chasing your tail with currency because our training blocks are broken up into multi-week sections and you go from one to the next, to the next, to the next, to the next. And it never ended for me over the course of a 17-year career. And of course, you got in your first team assignment, Team 5 in Southern California. You were, what, that was like the late 90s? Was that like 98, 99? I checked in, I think, late 97. It was. I think I checked into SEAL Team 5 November or December of 97. And if it wasn't that, it was January of 98. Mm. So yeah, late 90s. Yeah. So there's a lot of seasoning going on, not just for yourself as a noob, but I mean, for the teams themselves, because you were in that era before we all got baptized by fire with 9-11. And of course, then there's the whole global war on terrorism and spec ops, the same had to evolve. Um, <clears throat> I found one of the parts of the interviews I heard you do just so, so interesting. Uh, I think it was you and Rogan. <laughs> you were talking about one of the first missions you went on. And I was surprised to learn that you were part of the Jessica Lynch rescue in the early days of the, of our engagement in Iraq. Tell me about the early missions, kind of how they were so jacked up or how like that, you know, the weight of the gear almost suffocating from the hazmat suits or that mop gear that we had to wear for chemical warfare. Um, tell me about how not smooth early operations went. Well, I, they didn't go smooth in comparison to how they went smooth towards the tail end of my career. And that makes sense because. When I got into the SEAL community in the late 90s, there were a few people, and I mean literally a few, two or three, that had served and actually done anything in the real world in Vietnam. And those people were the legacy combat experience for the SEAL team. So it was, it was decades of training on a playbook that was largely based in that maritime environment of Vietnam, which makes sense for the SEAL community because it is a maritime force. Obviously, we're a component of the Navy, hence the water. But then 
Afghanistan and Iraq kicked off, which is probably the farthest thing from the Mekong Delta that could possibly be. And the tactics, you know, the way that we worked as an organization, our ability to shoot, move, and communicate, which at a broad level are the core competencies of being a SEAL, or I, I would say anybody in the military or special operations in general, that worked really well. And that has always worked really well. But the gear that we were using was not suited to the environment. Um, having not had any combat experience, let's just say you often would pack more than you would actually need, and everything that you pack is literally that on your body. And we hadn't been proven, and our tactics hadn't been tested in decades. And it was a refinement over time. It was a rapid refinement, but it just was, you know, we had to make a shift and a jump from a conceptual environment to a practical environment. And everything became refined from how we planned to how we equipped to how we organized and to how we deployed. And if you look, if I look at my last combat deployment I did in 2010 versus the first ones I did in late 0203, the element that I was involved with in 2010 was far superior to those in the early days of the war. Same people, but the blade was just sharpened. It had actually been taken out of the sheath and used. And in doing so, it had been refined and sharpened over the years. So mm. it's, it, but it was chunky. I mean, we just hadn't been tested. Now we'll take a quick break, but when we come back, former SEAL Team 6 team member Andy Stumpf will share how they were tested in the toughest way. That's ahead on Ion Veterans. Welcome back to CBS Ion Veterans. I'm your host, Navy veteran Phil Briggs. Now this hour, we're talking with a veteran who's a former member of the elite counterterrorism unit known as SEAL Team 6, and a guy who holds world records for skydiving. With no pun intended, we'll jump back into our conversation now with Navy veteran Andy Stumpf. And that I remember from the early days of the Iraq war, we, you know, we first get in and looking for WMDs, and then there's this Jessica Lynch rescue. Um, some had said it was like the biggest firefight ever. And she was just, you know, an unequivocal badass hero. And then there's others that said it was like this PR story that was just simply contrived because we had not found, uh, the WMDs we were looking for as a guy that was there. What are your thoughts on that? I lean far more towards the latter. And I, and this is obviously through the optic of looking backwards in time there. I mean, if you look at or listen to the justifications and reasonings that the United States used to engage into the war in Iraq. It, a lot of it was based off of WMDs, and we were in a hunt for WMDs, and we had not found any WMDs. And, you know, before I even talk about the operation, what I will say is I've actually had the chance to personally sit down with Jessica and talk with her for a few hours. I recorded an episode with her on my personal podcast, and it was amazing because she had never sat down and talked to somebody who was involved with that rescue from my side of the house. And I, you know, had the chance to sit down and talk with somebody that I saw for a brief moment in 2003 and then never knew what happened to her beyond that. The PR nightmare that came from it and what it got blown up into was absolutely not her fault. I feel like she was a cog in that wheel and she had no hand on the steering wheel because I remember when the rescue first happened, not only did that get blown out of proportion, but I remember people talking about how she should be the first female Medal of Honor winner because she had fought to her last bullet in her, you know, in her magazines and her gun had gone empty. And the reality is, is she was knocked unconscious relatively early and she didn't have the chance to fight back. And 
That's not her fault at all, nor is it her fault that she was used as a PR piece for the United States. And I think it needs to be recognized that that is what happened, and it needs to be recognized that that wasn't her pushing that. It was unfair to her, and it was unfair to the military. Um, when we went into that target, there was not a shot fired on target. The, uh, she had some medical personnel in her room. They were doing the best to care for her. They had tried to bring her back to an American checkpoint. The problem is, is that they chose to bring her in an ambulance. And in the days before putting her in that ambulance, the Fedayeen was using ambulances to stage attacks. So American forces were on high alert. They were looking for ambulances as a source of being ambushed. So they were pushed away as opposed to her being returned to American forces. But it was, uh, you know, when we were doing our planning, they said that we could expect somewhere between 50 to 500 Fedayeen on target, and we could fit, I think it was 18 people on the helicopters, or maybe it was 28. And that's what we launched with. So our planning process was based off of that, the risk assessment and the acceptance of that risk was based on that. And then at the end of the day, it didn't end up being any of that, but it was blown out of proportion, unfortunately, and the narrative was completely spun and lost. You know, it really is kind of a microcosm of the ugliness of war. I mean, there's so many other factors going on. There's a mission, there are bad guys, and then there's all these other interests that get involved. And by the time it gets spoken to the American public, um, you know, it can have several layers of messaging on top of what actually goes on and, and the who, what, where, when, and why. And uh, that's why it's always great to talk to you guys. I, I, I love talking to my fellow veterans, but the guys that are combat vets, especially, um, you know, have a clarity about what war is and about what we are doing globally. Uh, that is just undeniable. So um, thank you for sharing that with me. And, of course, you guys tightened up and got better, and the machine gets better the more it gets used. Like you said, like a blade, it gets sharpened and sharpened over time. And then you know, now we're to an era where we always were elite, but, I mean, our skills are great. And we get into this narrative now where we're so proud of that, and we're so proud of the defense of our country and our nation and our freedoms, which we should be. But then it gets nitpicked a little bit, and we start looking at, some again, some of the uglier sides. And I've been dying to ask you this since I booked this interview. Uh, but we're coming out of this era with reports like uh, that of a year ago with Senior Chief Eddie Gallagher. Mm -hmm. uh, SEALs that have done amazing things in defense of our country. But then we hear about stories about reenlisting over the dead body of an enemy combatant. And we start wondering, is Navy Special Warfare, uh, is DevGrew, I mean, are, 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 are these people out of control? Uh, I've even heard from other soft vets, um, you know, uh, Rangers and the like, that uh, we don't even need Navy SEALs to execute our missions, that they've become rather troublesome. Um, it hurts my heart to hear our team members dissension among our teams, but uh, what are your thoughts on that? Um, I think you should take people as an individual and realize that communities, special operations in general, are made up of individuals. And inside of that, you're going to have issues at the same level that you're going to have issues in society. War is an interesting thing. And if you touch it, I believe that it touches you back. And it, it impacts and affects people in very different ways. Um, war crimes and atrocities have been happening since the inception of warfare, regardless if you're fighting with sticks and stones or the most uh, technologically superior weapons. Um, and I think that the best way for any military branch or service or community to move forward and to maintain the integrity that they should have and the perception that they should have for the American people is that they need to be transparent. Um, 
you know, Eddie Gallagher was tried in a legal system that the Navy has in place, and the results are the results. So they need to be accepted, and if you refuse to accept the result because it doesn't align with your personal narrative, then the issue is actually yourself. Because if you would have accepted the result, if it would have given you the uh, result that you wanted and you choose to refuse it because it gives you something else, then the issue is not in the system. The issue is in yourself. But I'll be the first to say that the SEAL community is not perfect. But if any ranger wants to sit there and talk about how their community or any other special operations force wants to sit there and say that their communities are somehow immune to these issues, we're going to have a very interesting conversation because I can go chapter and verse on almost any community inside of the military where these issues present themselves. And I have no doubt that uh, communities in the military uh, dislike the amount of attention that the SEAL community gets. Personally, I don't think it's a good thing. But it's also not for Rangers or the Ranger community to determine whether or not the SEAL community is still needed. We have the Joint Chiefs of Staff, the Secretary of Defense, and people at higher levels and higher echelons of commands to make those decisions. SEAL community exists for a reason. It should never be outside of the microscope of transparency and responsibility and accountability. When those people are found to fall short, I think they should be prosecuted to the maximum extent uh, that the system will allow them to, and we should be open as a community because that's what allows us to maintain our integrity. With respect to guys like Gallagher, do you think there's uh, some kind of attrition of a moral compass that we need to account for and maybe limit the amount of deployments? I think it depends on the person. It, any broad prescription, I think by definition, will be inaccurate. And people, I've, I've watched and been there in, in environments and situations where Let's say there's five of us, and it bothers one person very deeply, and four of us not at all. And then other situations that would seem innocuous or not very damaging can really bother people deeply. So it's, it's, it's hard to say how much it impacts the individual because everybody is exactly that. They're an individual. They have a different processing ability when it comes to stress, a different coping mechanism, a different willingness or desire to go seek help and talk to somebody and work through their issues. So it's very hard to just make a broad prescription and say, uh, we have to limit this or it erodes at your moral compass. It's, it's just far too individual. Do you think for just general health sake, they should limit the amount of deployments? I mean, should there be, you know, not an expiration date, but I mean, should guys only be able to, you know, start in so many games over the course of a career? I think there is value in that but I don't know where you would limit it because obviously with that experience, you become more efficient. You, you know, and we're talking about my old job in comparison to sports, you'll become more lethal. Um, the pattern recognition is a very large part of it. So you get used. I mean, a lot of the decisions happen very quickly and the more pattern recognition you have, the faster that you can make them. But I think at some point you should reach a glass ceiling. And then from there, I think, it's not that you're no longer useful to the community. Your job should become passing on the knowledge and making sure that as a human being, you are equipped to move on to the next phase of your life. Because I think that's one thing vets often forget is that the military is not the end-all be-all. Regardless of what age you join, you're going to have an expiration date and you need to prepare for that as well. And we'll have more with former SEAL Team 6 member Andy Stump when Eye on Veterans returns. Welcome back to CBS Eye on Veterans. I'm your host, Navy veteran Phil Briggs. And this hour, we've been talking with Navy veteran, former team member of SEAL Team 6, and a world record skydiver, Andy Stumpf. 
In this segment, we'll talk about mental health and what it's like to jump out of a plane at over 36,000 feet above the earth and fly wearing only a wingsuit. High altitude jumping wasn't necessarily new. I didn't start jumping a wingsuit until I was out of the military, but a buddy hmm. of mine showed me a video of him jumping his wingsuit. I said, damn, that, that looks awesome. So I started jumping wingsuits, and then the opportunity presented itself to do that fundraiser for the Navy SEAL Foundation. And I looked at the what it is that I did, and at that time I was skydiving at a very regular level and a relatively high level. So all I really did was took what I was doing and applied it to the fundraising. So The video is amazing, and I know you words are probably going to be hard to define what it feels like, but... Um... What's it like to fly for 18 miles in a wingsuit? <laughs> it's just, it, I mean, it's tiring. If you look, if you think of an airplane, you know, if you cut the, the wing of an airplane down the long axis, you're going to see a lot of reinforcement of metal and it holds the rigidity of the wing in place. None of that exists in a wingsuit. It's a nylon, it's basically nylon fabric. And so your skeletal system and your muscular system is holding that rigidity. So I was just glad that it was over at the end because you're trying to hold the most aerodynamic position possible against the flow of wind against that skeletal and, and muscular system. So I was just glad that it was done. Oh, I never thought about that. Yeah. So you like your delts are burning your biceps are, I mean, yeah, that's yeah. Your traps are hurting your neck from keeping your head up. Yeah. That's um... eight minute and 10 second isometric hold. It was not, it was not awesome. <laughs> Did you have any interaction with wildlife? Did you have any, I mean, not like you can really pay much attention, but at a moment, you had a few minutes up there in the sky. Did a bird ever fly by and like give you the weird eye? Like, what are you doing, dude? You're not supposed to be here. No, nope. never saw anything. Left the aircraft. Never saw anything moving from the time I left till the time I hit the ground. Well, my producer is going to be disappointed. I was hoping I'd have a like a real life story about what it was like to talk to a seagull or a eagle or. Have a weird well, time. I was doing over 100 miles an hour, and I'm pretty sure that a seagull and an eagle cannot achieve that forward speed, so we wouldn't have had much to talk about. <laughs> uh, I have thought about uh, you as a brand, Badassator, for Kill Cliff Energy Drink, and that's kind of how I've seen you in the news lately. So let me dig into that. First, Kill Cliff Energy Drink. Um, how'd you get involved, and what's your favorite? what's your favorite part of that? I got involved with them through the fundraising effort for the SEAL Foundation. They were my first official sponsor in the skydiving and base jumping world, and it was through the fact that I knew the founder, hmm. uh, Todd, and he, he and I hit it off, so it started just as that, and then my love for the brand definitely grew. I mean, they essentially exist to try to give back to the SEAL community and the families through the Navy SEAL Foundation, the proceed of every one of their sales goes directly to that, and... It's, you know, they, they offer more than just an energy drink. And I personally, I do not use energy drinks. What I'm interested in is recovery. So specifically, uh, what has gotten me to fall even more in love with that brand is they've started uh, bringing in the CBD products, the cannabinoid products. And the reason I love them so much, and because I've played around with every version of it, from like a lotion you put on your skin to droplets under the tongue, it's something for me that helps me manage uh, stress and soreness, and I'm just not a fan of ingesting pills. I'm, I believe that Big Pharma has done amazing things for human nature and society in general, but I don't know how many times I've just been handed baggies full of 800-milligram Motrins from the military medicine, and you'll take those things, and it feels like your stomach is consuming itself. I just don't respond well to it. So I was looking for a much more natural and holistic approach, and I found that in their recovery drinks and specifically the CBD 
recovery drinks. So it, it's a much deeper relationship to me than just a, a sponsorship or an endorsement. Now, of course, training and a lot of other things we do are ways to keep our mental health in the right place. And uh, share with me some of your secrets to uh, maintaining positive mental health. That's a tough one because, again, it's broad. And post-traumatic stress manifests itself very differently in individuals. Sometimes it's restlessness when you're trying to sleep. Other times it's the complete inability to sleep because your mind won't shut off. or You know what I mean? Or irritability Mm. or lack of emotional regulation. So. It's very hard to say, but what I can say, and I know for a fact, is that there are tens of thousands of organizations out there that are funded that exist solely to help people in that situation. And the issue with it is, in my opinion, and of course this is only my opinion, is that the veteran needs to make the move on their own. You should not wait for somebody to come to you and say, hey, I'm here to help you. What you need to do is put your best foot forward and be objective and realistic about how you are dealing with stress, whether it be good or bad. And, and what I would say is, even if you are doing good, it doesn't have to be sit down and talk with a counselor. There's equine therapy. There's I've seen therapy involved with woodworking, or, you know, or clay, or fill in the blank. You can find whatever it is that works for you. Are there specific habits or routines that you do, though, like on a daily that? that help keep your mind right? I try to sweat at least once a day, and I don't really worry about where it comes from. I mean, I'm very fortunate to live in the mountains, so I can go hiking out of the back of my house. Um, I have the chance to do uh, where I live. There's an amazing jiu-jitsu community, so I can go roll on the mats or go take a class. I have a gym in my garage. So there's a variety of different options, and I worry less about how I'm going to achieve that sweat and just focus on I need to Uh, pretty much every day. For me, that is really one of the big anchors in my life. And maybe that's because I'm focusing on the physical activity instead of all the static noise that we all deal with. And then on top of that, you know, when it comes to talking about recovery and the importance of that, diet and sleep play a huge part in that. And one thing, if you're going to maximize recovery, and this is, you know, from a veteran talking to other vets or speaking to other vets, I mean, we all understand that a large part of military that we served in, you know, alcohol is is a part of the culture. I mean, people will try to talk their way around that, but the reality is that it is a huge part of the culture. At least it was when I was in, and I know it was even worse when my father was in and his father, but alcohol and substance abuse, there's a time and place for everything. If you want to go out and have a couple good drinks with your friends, I'm all about that. I mean, I'll burn the house down sometimes with my friends too, but it's not my daily because those Mm -hmm. things completely and utterly erode long-term recovery. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, life gives you some dents, some dings. We're living in this world right now where so many people are hurting. I mean, we've got racial injustice issues people are talking about. You got COVID, you got unemployment. Imagine going through a divorce, a trauma, a drama. I mean, 2020 could be one hell of a bad year. Um, as we find the landing spot here, what's your advice for anybody that could be hurting right now? Uh, you got any kind of old adages or phrases that we could sort of employ here and make us feel good? I mean, I don't know if I have any of that. I mean, I don't know if adages or phrases actually help people. Um, I think everybody is going through their own struggles and challenges. And I'm not going to say that I think that's the point of life, but I think it's I think it's a part of life. And there's nothing wrong with saying that you need help. Um, if I if I were to give any advice to anybody, it would be. If you think that asking for help is a sign of weakness, my only suggestion would be is to flip that narrative in your head. It's the person who asks for help that is the strongest in my mind, not the one who sits there and says, I need no help. 
while things are slowly crumbling behind the scenes. And that is the LZ right there. That is uh, that is where we'll leave it. I really, really appreciate your time. Andy Stumpf, you're a former Navy SEAL, former member of SEAL Team 6, world record-setting skydiver, um, brand ambassador for Kill Cliff, and uh, host of his own podcast, Cleared Hot. Oh, what a minute. Give it to me. I made it. You're cleared hot. Captain Cleared Hot. So cool. From the intro to the info in the Cleared Hot podcast, former Navy SEAL Andy Stumpf. Man, thank you so much for being on the show, brother. Yeah, thanks for having me. Earn your degree online at University of Maryland Global Campus. Meet with our military and veteran advisors in our virtual advising remotely at umgc.edu slash virtual advising. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Ion Veterans ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcast starting May 8th. Access episodes early and ad-free with 48 Hours Plus on Apple Podcasts starting May 1st. Catch every episode of 60 Minutes, America's most-watched news magazine show, as a podcast. Hear in-depth investigations across politics, news, and entertainment on your schedule. Listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Wondery Plus.